Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Paul Sabin. He is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University, where he also coordinates the Environmental History Working Group and Environmental Humanities Program. He's the author of The Bet, Paul Ehrlich, Julian Simon, and Our Gamble Over Earth's Future, and before that, Crude Politics, The California Oil Market, 1900-1940. He's here today to discuss his latest book, Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. It was published uh, last week by W.W. Norton. Dr. Sabin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. This is really a marvelous book. It's so timely. It's historiographically important. And, and it's really crisply written. You know, I'm a slow reader and I read it in a day. Um, oh, that's great. <laughs> and, when that's it, great. and when it comes to uh, kind of classifying it by genre or academic field, it's a little slippery. And it's you know, something kind of of a mirror. I was thinking that if you were to approach it, expecting another you know, cutting edge book on environmental politics from an esteemed environmental historian, you certainly won't be disappointed. But you know, if you pick it up caring very little about environmental scholarship, you can still, you know, still be thoroughly taken by the book. And you might actually never think to use the adjective environmental to describe it. And so I, I wondered after your earlier, more sort of unmissably environmental books, what led you to write this one? Oh, that's a that's a great question. And I, I mean, I think it gets to, you know, my approach to environmental history, which has always been to try to relate uh, uh, developments in the environmental field, I guess, broadly to uh, broader currents in American history and American politics. And uh, so so this book really follows, I guess it's in some ways a merger of the two previous books, or it it brings them together. Uh, You know, the crude politics was very much about law and political economy. uh, And then the bet was more uh, intellectual history of sort of the arguments between economics and biology and uh, different approaches to thinking about the environment and resources and scarcity. Uh, in the 1970s, and so after after the bet, I wanted to turn to uh, you know more towards political economy and law again, and uh, you know I was looking for characters that would allow me to explore the origins of the environmental movement in the 60s and 70s, and particularly regulation uh, and law. So uh, uh, so then I was searching around for ha- how to do that, um, which is a challenging uh, challenging approach. You have a you know all these different agencies, uh, the acronyms, and uh, uh, faceless bureaucrats and. Face- Faceless uh, nonprofit. Uh, well, they all have faces, but uh, uh, um, lots of lawyers, uh, respectfully. Um, uh, but uh, trying to figure out how to do that. Um, and I had access actually here at Yale to the uh, Natural Resources Defense Council papers, which were being here. And I was at one point thought of doing sort of an organizational biography, but that didn't seem like that would work. So I uh, instead, uh, you know, hooked on to uh, Ralph Nader as a central character. He seemed like a, a significant enough figure to. Um, sort of be a thread through the book, although it's not it's not at all a biography. Um, but I used him, and then uh, and then you know these organizations and other leaders to uh, you know try to flesh out the public interest uh, movement and the environmental movement. That's great, and and we'll come back to your characters, your main characters, in a moment here. But I just just at the very beginning of the book, you know, you know, growing up in the United States with a very powerful conservative movement, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I I you know I sometimes have struggled to fully appreciate what it was like to live in the post-war era with this dominant liberalism. And I think a kind of a testament to that dominance is that one of the first voices who are cr- who's critical of the New Deal order in your book here is John F. Kennedy, a New Deal liberal. And, and so I, I wonder if you could just orient us here, like what should listeners think of when they hear the words New Deal order? And how could someone like Kennedy kind of firmly in that order, how could he criticize it from within? 
Well, I think uh, New Deal order, uh, you know, goes back to uh, uh, the, there was a wonderful collection uh, back that maybe it was even when I was in grad school about the New Deal order, and it was really really about the uh, intersection of uh, you know a, 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 of government, business, and and labor uh, in creating a uh, uh, it's not exactly a coalition, but a, a, a negotiated peace of some kind in the post war period, uh, and, uh, and 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 between the 1920s and 1930s uh, through the 1970s. Uh, as historians like uh, Richard Vitor or Tom McCraw and other historians of regulation have written, you know, there was a, a period of time in which the federal government plays a, uh, a really a kind of managerial role in the economy and uh, uses regulation to um, uh, sort of manage different industrial sectors. Uh, and, and that's the sort of the New Deal order that I'm talking about. And uh, uh, and, and what's one of the things that's interesting about Kennedy and, and the Kennedy administration, sort of the beginnings of this uh, liberal um, uh, repudiation of, of, the, of the liberal establishment itself, uh, is, is a real beginning of, of the questioning of, of that order. And uh, uh, so Kennedy talks about it. He, he issues a consumer message at one point, and that's probably what you're referring to. You know, so he, 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 you know, he famously uh, has the sort of the New Deal spirit at the beginning, you know, in his inaugural talks about, um, you know, come to Washington, work for the government and, you know, serve the country. You know, that, that's very much in the spirit of the New Deal. But but then he issues this consumer message in which he really acknowledges that uh, the government is not adequately representing uh, citizens and consumers. And there needs to be some other uh, mechanisms for doing that. And, and that builds on uh, a very important report uh, and, and that was written by a, a guy named James Landis, uh, who I think is 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 a great indicator of the shift uh, within liberalism, because Landis was a new dealer um, who was involved in launching the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, and he wrote a very important book in the 1930s, I think it came out in 38, called The Administrative Process, uh, uh, in which he celebrates executive agencies uh, and the power of uh, executive agencies uh, to kind of in the calm of expertise and uh, uh, bureaucratic decision making to sort of act in the public interest. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that New Deal approach of favoring agencies, also symbolized by the Tennessee Valley Authority, perhaps best, uh, you know, most, uh, most, most, most vigorously, um, is uh, in many ways a, uh, uh, a critique of courts uh, and litigation uh, and, uh, and even Congress, uh, and instead seeing agencies as a key, uh, as a key uh, independent source of expertise and decision-making. Uh, so Landis, uh, after that, um, actually goes and works for uh, the airline uh, air, air, airline uh, regulators, uh, and he becomes very disillusioned and realizes that the airline board is has been captured by the, by the uh, airline uh, companies. Uh, and by the and then Kennedy asked him to write a report about regulatory agencies with that, that comes out in 1960. Uh, and in that report, uh, Landis really lays the groundwork for the public interest movement that's going to follow uh, by describing essentially industry capture of the agencies uh, and the ways that uh, agency bureaucrats are representing the agencies that they're supposed to be regulating uh, and instead of representing some public interest. Uh, and so Landis has become very disillusioned with the uh, agency model that he helped establish uh, and articulate. Uh, and, and that sort of lays the groundwork uh, for the for liberals uh, sort of trying to find some other way to uh, uh, represent a public interest uh, that is not being represented by the agencies themselves. So it's in chapter two that we, we meet sort of your main characters who you alluded to earlier here. There's Rachel Carson, 
there's Jane Jacobs and there's Ralph Nader. And of course, Nader gets the most attention throughout the book, partly because he's, you know, he's living and working in the United States throughout your whole period here. Um, beyond their fame and their authoring of influential bestsellers, what's similar about them? You know, and I also wonder, is it mere coincidence that, you know, these are all characters that also would might pop up in an environmental history survey course or in a textbook, you know, is, is the environmental dimension of them purely just accident or is there something kind of meaningful about that? Uh, well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I really use uh, Carson Jacobs and Nader in the uh, early in the book to set up uh, the intellectual challenge to the New Deal order, and they're all authors of blockbuster uh, books, uh, and they have a lot of commonalities in the sense that they uh, all have uh, you know writing backgrounds uh, of various kinds, and uh, you know, they had uh, connections to government uh, in different ways, um, uh, but they end up uh, being quite critical of of the government agencies, and and, and so I see them as the, as intellectuals who are articulate this uh, critique of the New Deal order, uh, and they all blame the agencies and the people running the agencies uh, for being too close to business or having their terrible own, their own terrible ideas, uh, whether it's Robert Moses or the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture with pesticides uh, or the, you know, Car companies and the traffic safety agencies, uh, and Nader calls uh, calls them calls this a constellation uh, the great power with no challengers, and I see that sort of as a metaphor for uh, the New Deal liberal order, uh, and they are saying that citizens have to rise up and challenge uh, this uh, constellation of uh, of power, uh, and it's not a not a coincidence at all, of course, that they, uh, well, one, you know, I'm interested in the environment, and and the book leans towards the environmental characters, um, yeah, but but it's not a coincidence that they would all be in environmental history surveys. Um, because they all are, uh, you know, a part of the citizen movement that's a, that's a attacking the agencies. And one of the main things that the citizen movements were attacking agencies for uh, were the developmental plans of the uh, post-war period, whether it's you know, highways or pesticides or uh, redevelopment plans. Uh, uh, and, and so uh, the environment is an area where a lot of what's going on is uh, uh, is happening uh, related to public goods like clean air and uh, clean water and uh, 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 that that citizen activism. Like there's no clear uh, entity responsible for protecting those interests, and so it is a understandable area where citizens would rise up to try to protect those interests. Uh, so so I, I so I bring them all together in the beginning of the book, but actually Nader uh, is the transitional figure there, which I and. And um, and Carson and Jacobs don't continue through the book. Obviously, Carson dies uh, at a very at a young age, sadly, uh, and Jacobs actually leaves the country to go to Canada. Um, and, but Nader is distinctive because he then becomes an organizational uh, 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 entrepreneur um, and and decides that he's going to kind of create all these nonprofits and bring all these young people into a movement. Uh, and so he's the transitional figure from the intellectuals uh, to the nonprofit uh, movement of the '70s, and and that, that that's kind of the the important turn that happens. Uh, in the late 60s uh, with these, you know, with Nader. Yeah. And, and as you narrated, Nader's career is just really astonishing. It's really, I mean, it's really the influence. I mean, I understand, I understood him. I understood the influence he had, but when you go through it year by year, it's really like the, the, the busy guy, power, busy guy. Yeah, busy. And then the influence <laughs> he was able to, to, to have, you know, on Congress was really quite striking. Um, in 1969, he assembles this task force, you know, and I think also the stuff about, you know, his, his, his allure to young, you know, young lawyers, especially, I think, was it, do you say that a third of Yale law students at one year? Uh, Harvard law school, yeah, law. one year, a uh, third of the Harvard law school class, I think, applied to work for Nader uh, to go do investigative work Just for him. <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable. But so in 1969, he assembles this, this first task force to investigate federal protections of health and safety of all kinds in this kind of developmental arm. Um, and, and what's especially striking about its first report, which is on air pollution, uh, is that it, it really just excoriated Senator Edmund Muskie 
who probably had as an impressive a record as of environmental action as anyone in Congress at that time. And, and he was certainly invested in his environmental image looking forward to the 72 presidential campaign. Um, and, and so, you know, why, why did Nader want to attack Muskie? Why attack Muskie? And, and what does that reveal about Nader's theory of power, as you call it? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, so I guess the first, yeah, the first report was on the Federal Trade Commission, uh, and then he, then that's later fine. that was successful, and then he uh, he invites a, a whole group of people to come down and they investigate uh, clean air, clean water, pesticides, and, and he kind of sees this task force model as a, as an approach, and, and the students uh, and professionals go rummaging around in the agencies, and uh, uh, there's a description of them like looking under the couches <laughs> and finding the secrets. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, th- I think that, uh, yeah, the attack on Muskie is really telling uh, because, uh, you know, Muskie is a big liberal who's seen as a big, you know, tremendous environmentalist. Uh, and Nader, basically, Nader and, and uh, John Esposito, who's one of the lead uh, writers of the um, uh, Vanishing Air report, uh, you know, really call out Muskie and say this is all a lie, essentially. And uh, uh, and it's part of the uh, the ambivalent relationship, I guess, of the of Nader and the public interest movement with the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think it, it, it symbolizes uh, a lack of commitment to the party itself, uh, the sense that they are outside and above the party uh, and separate from it. And uh, they have to hope that the party uh, is as culpable. Uh, you know, the parties are very similar. Uh, and uh, and Nader has also uh, found, uh, you know, success attacking, uh, attacking his friends. Uh, you know, there's more success attacking your friends than your enemies because your enemies, don't, you know, don't give a crap <laughs> what you think. Uh, and whereas your friends, you know, Muskie, uh, immediately after Nader's report came out, you know, Muskie called a press conference and he had to defend himself, and and uh, and it had a real impact on the on the Clean Air Act, uh, and uh, you know, resulted in it being uh, you know much tougher than it would have been otherwise. And Nader was Nader and his team were involved in negotiating aspects of it. And Leon Billings, who was the one of the Senate aides, you know, he he credited Nader for uh, you know, holding the Democrats' feet to the fire and making the bill tougher. So it had tremendous results. So it, it, it just shows uh, the uh, the ambivalence of uh, of Nader and the public interest uh, movement uh, to liberalism and to the Democratic Party uh, that Nader would be launching this attack on Muskie, who was at that time, you know, trying to you know position himself to be the Democratic uh, candidate in 1972. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Nader was really going after the standard bearer for environmentalism. And, and you know, at, you know, at Earth Day, Muskie is out, you know, calling on the movement uh, and celebrating environmentalism, uh, and to go after Muskie like that uh, and, uh, you know, contribute to his ultimately not being the nominee uh, was significant. And, and, and that's a kind of an ambivalence towards um, the party. Uh, uh, you asked about the theory of power. And I think that that uh, I have a chapter in the book uh, about that. Um, and I think the important theme on the theory of power has to do with uh, power being insecure. Uh, and Nader uh, talks about um the idea that uh, power of any kind uh, can get too comfortable, uh, can can be corrupted, uh, and uh, and can become oppressive, uh, and so his idea of the citizen movement uh, was that it would hold all the different kinds of institutions of power in society. Uh, it would it would help them be un- insecure and, and therefore more accountable uh, and more uh, you know, accountable to the public interest. And and that's that chapter especially looks at, at why Nader was he was not uh, not aloof to the 
the lives and, and the threats on workers, but but opponent, often opposing labor unions because of because yeah, of- I mean, because that's a real question uh, for for thinking about the public interest movement. Like, yeah. why? Um, so, two questions that I think are worth asking about these liberals is one is why not try to take over the Democratic Party and take over the government? So that would be one question, uh, and then the other is why not operate through traditional labor unions? Uh, and what they did instead was create this uh, array of small nonprofit organizations uh, to watch over all these institutions. Uh, and the labor union uh, is, you know, that story, uh, I got very interested in that, uh, uh, the story of the United Mine Workers uh, and uh, Jock Yablonsky, uh, uh, who gets uh, murdered by the head of the uh, United, the president of the United Mine Workers, Tony Boyle. Uh, and, uh, and Nader had been involved in encouraging Yablonsky to run. Uh, and uh, and then Yablonsky gets murdered, and, and, and the murder of Yablonsky is, is in many ways, you know, it's very symbolic of the potential uh, for corruption of power uh, within the union, uh, and uh, and so so that is why you know the union democracy movement emerges, but also why the citizens movements have this ambivalent relationship to the unions themselves. Yeah, and so in all these small organizations that, that start to spring up here, and, and following in some ways Nader's lead here, um, many of them are just full of lawyers, and and, and that becomes this big approach that we'll, that we can talk about. Um, and you title your chapter on environmental law firms, Sue the Bastards, um, which must have been fun to do. And uh, and that's a line, of course, that environmental defense fund lawyer uh, Victor Yanaconi deployed as the organization's kind of unofficial motto. Um, and it's an, it's important to your argument that we remember who the bastards were in their mind. You know, I think we often think, oh, corporate polluters. Right. But most often it's really government agencies that they're that they're filing lawsuits against in this time. And so I, I wonder, you know, why did mainstream environmentalism you know, get so litigious in the 70s and why especially were its legal actions usually directed at the state? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question, and and that was yeah that is why uh, you know I chose that title was to kind of the question of who were the bastards, and uh, you know certainly industry still they they also were the bastards, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, but 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 when you go back and look at the case records of uh, uh, the Environmental Defense Fund and the Natural Resource Defense Council, Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, you know virtually all of the litigation that they file is against uh, government agencies, and and uh, and that was um, you know that was. For a couple of uh, uh, a few different reasons, um, you know, one was that there wasn't really legal grounds uh, for that. You know, they didn't have a leverage point to file against the industries directly, uh, and and the agencies were playing a permitting role and a sort of guiding role that gave them leverage points. Um, but it also that was also the agencies sort of allowing things that they thought were terrible ideas, whether it's you know, highways or you know, redevelopment projects or uh, any number of different things, uh, mines. Uh, um, and, and then the second uh, aspect of this was that, they, that that government agencies were initiating projects themselves. Uh, they were very active. Uh, and you can think of someone like Robert Moses uh, or uh, um, uh, or the you know uh, the, the the Bureau of Reclamation uh, or uh, any number of these agencies were were uh, the Department of Transportation. Um, uh, so so you know so the government uh, was was a major uh, target, and I think it was for so there were two aspects of this. Uh, one was the idea of the government being captured uh, by industry, uh, and then the second was the idea of government uh, being sort of an independent bureaucracy uh, that was. Uh, uh, had its own sort of narrow vision about the future and uh, what should be done uh, that uh, that these law- environmental lawyers didn't think represented the public interest. A- and the reason why they turned to litigation uh, goes back to, uh, you know, what I was saying about uh, uh, their attitude towards agencies. And it's, a, it's what's quite interesting about it is the reversal uh, that from the New Deal, 
uh, in the New Deal, it was agencies over courts. Uh, and then now it's courts over agencies. Uh, and they see the courts as being the key in the court. You can get it in the courts. You can get a you can get a hearing uh, and you can the public interest can be affirmed and enforced, uh, whereas agencies, you know, are, are, are the problem. Uh, so it was really seeing the agencies in some ways as responsible for the environmental crisis. I think you flagging that was just so helpful, I think, to me to conceptualize this, this, this reversal. And that was really uh, yeah, that really it's going to stick with me. Um, and then we get to 76 and, and Carter is elected. First time we have a Democrat, you know, in the White House in, in eight years. And, and uh, you know, and, and when his administration starts to staff up, we can see clearly how far the public interest movement had come in just in just those short eight short years. Um, and I wonder, you know, what ways did, did Carter try to bring public interest native folks like that into the fold? And, you know, what limited his success in doing so? Well, that's a great question. And, and, and you could say that the Carter years are in some ways the fulcrum for the book. Uh, and it's uh, it's trying to sort of re, re, uh, reassess Carter's, uh, what was Carter trying to do? Uh, and and part of what I'm arguing is that uh, Carter was, uh, was trying to find a way to uh, uh, incorporate the public interest critique into, uh, into governing. Uh, and he struggled to do that. He brought public interest lawyers, lots of people, uh, into uh, uh, different agencies, EPA, transportation, uh, really through into the Office of Management and Budget, elsewhere. Uh, and, uh, and, and then the goal was to try to um, both uh, have government act uh, and be uh, you know, a, a positive force for implementing agendas uh, and improving people's lives. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, Carter was passionate about reform uh, and he wanted to uh, uh, he wanted to take into account the criticisms of government that had been articulated by the public interest movement over the last, previous 10 years uh, and 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 show that uh, government could both uh, you know, both act and be reformed and be like in a constant process of, uh, of reform. Um, and so he, uh, you know, he had some successes on this, but I, th- but ultimately, I guess the argument of the book is that he failed, uh, to, uh, uh, create, a uh, a political strategy that would incorporate this duality uh, that it was too complicated basically. And, uh, uh, and, and what we ended up with instead was, uh, something much simpler, um, which was the Reaganites uh, being against the government and for the market, uh, and then the kind of post-Reagan uh, liberals defending the government. Uh, and what got lost was this, uh, this more complex thing that Carter was trying to implement, uh, where liberals would both defend the government and criticize the government at the same time. Uh, and that I think is the that's really the dilemma that I'm trying to get at at the book in the book and uh, is the dilemma of the Carter administration. Uh, and I can get into more details about about how that dilemma plays out. Yeah, I, um, I wonder if you tell the story, you know, it's very memorably. You have him sign the signing ceremony on December 1980, where he has those two bills that kind of represent both both parts of this game. You could talk, talk us through that. Yeah, one. yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it's this fascinating uh, moment in 1980 in December. So after he's lost the election, uh, there's one day, uh, I think it's the 10th or 11th, uh, uh, one morning and, and, and Carter uh, signs two bills. Uh, one is a Superfund law uh, and the other is the Paperwork Reduction Act. Um, and so one way to think about this is, uh, you know, is that the Paperwork Reduction Act, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, the Superfund law was the last, uh, you know, environmental law of the 1980s. This, this was the decade, as, as Rick Nixon said, this was going to be the decade of the 19 of the environment, the 1970s, um, and that Superfund coming at the end of the 1970, uh, uh, right at the end of the administration, uh, was the final building block of this new regulatory state. Uh, and really, there wasn't much, you know, after that, you know, there are a few scattered major uh, items uh, over the next, you know, 30 years. Um, but you could see this as, as uh, 
uh, as the end of that. And that paperwork reduction represented Reagan and the market, and we're going to constrain government and uh, and try to reform it. Um, but I see it as something different. And if you go back and look at Carter's uh, comments on it, you see what I was just trying to say, which is that uh, you know Carter uh, was actually passionate about both of these. It wasn't it wasn't that uh, Superfund was where his heart was, and uh, paperwork reduction was his concession. Uh, he believed you know passionately in government reform, and he alludes to like one of his most pr- proudest days uh, in his administration was when they got rid of 900 obsolete you know regulations, uh, and he goes back and references his time in, in Georgia. Uh, uh, consolidating agencies and uh, uh, reforming the government, uh, and so what Carter was trying to do was to say that liberals could uh, could could be both for Superfund, which ironically is like one of the great paperwork generating laws, you know, in uh, in the 1970s, uh, and uh, uh, and they could also be for paperwork reduction. Uh, so that and that again, so that's so this duality that I'm trying to say, which is uh, uh, described, uh, which is the government um, being for the government for super fun for action, uh, and then uh, critical of the government for paperwork reduction to say that actually uh, the government needs to be constantly improved and criticized and uh, and watched over. That's great. I wonder if, before we move on to Reagan, who's waiting in the wings, obviously in this conversation, I, I wonder if we could. Uh dwell on a couple of, of the, the limits of the vision of, of, of public interest groups. And, and one of them you touch on a lot in the book, which is, is, is you know, with, with mainstream environmentalism, it's very easy to say, you know, this group got, came enamored with kind of protecting places around where they lived and not where other people lived, right? And if it's this white middle class movement. Um, and, but it's, and, and, and we see something similar happening here with public interest groups, even though it seems harder to imagine because they're talking about kind of making the government more responsive to the people in that, in that way. And so you, you come back to this kind of again and again of where there was an opportunity to build a broader cross-class movement that never came to be. And, and I wonder why that, why you think that was. Well, that's a great uh, uh, question about the 1970s is trying to understand, you know, how uh, you come out of the civil rights movement and you end up with these uh, quite f- this quite fragmented advocacy community uh, around these very different issues. Um, and uh, it, we could talk about that for a long time and offer different explanations for, for why that happens. Um, but I think that... Uh, you know, one explanation for that, or, or, or some different aspects of that. Uh, so, so, well, well, one of the ironies of the environmental groups is that they uh, are described uh, today as being, uh, uh, you know, very white. You know, why a more cross-class and uh, you know multiracial movement didn't emerge uh, during the 1970s, and I think that uh, it's a real. You know, it's a very interesting question uh, going back because you look at these environmental law groups that I am studying, and many of them are founded uh, at the you know the height of the civil rights movement, and uh, and so it's a good question like what's the relationship? And one of the things that I found was that the uh, groups are you know really inspired by the civil rights movement, and they even name themselves kind of after the civil you know after the NAACP. Uh, uh, you know, uh, fund law and you know litigation fund. Um, and, you know, you have the Environmental Defense Fund, the Sierra Club uh, Legal Defense Fund. Uh, and so they're, they're sort of modeled on that approach to public interest law to sue the government and, and pursue litigation as a strategy. Uh, and many of the founders also uh, had experience in the civil rights movement. Um, they went down to the South, maybe just for a summer uh, or some uh, period of volunteering, but they they were, uh, you know, these, these are white lawyers uh, who went down and they uh, were incredibly moved by their experience and, and and inspired to be part of social change. 
and believing that the law could be about something more than working for corporations. Uh, and uh, similarly, uh, the Vietnam War was also uh, deeply catalyzing for, uh, for these lawyers uh, in terms of their mistrust uh, of the government and, uh, and all that. So I go into that a little bit in the book. Um, but the question you're asking is why, uh, you know, why is a more multiracial cross-class uh, movement doesn't emerge? And, and there are efforts, you know, right, we're working with farm workers, working with uh, mine workers, working around highways. There are efforts, but ultimately it's not successful. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I, I think there are several, re- you know, several reasons, again, a long, long possible topic, sure. one of which is the focus on rights as a as an approach uh, results in a segmentation of the issues. Uh, so you have um, uh, a women's you know, women's rights organization, you have environmental rights, you have you know, poverty rights, you have uh, all, you know, the the um, the. Uh, uh, Racial justice organizations also splinter. You have a Mexican American, you know, a Mex, uh, a, a, a Puerto Rican legal defense fund, uh, a Mexican American legal defense fund, uh, African American and Native American. You know, so so there's just a proliferation of individuated approaches to seeking rights within a litigation based system. Uh, and I think that there was, uh, and there was, and 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 they had success. Uh, tremendous success uh, at the beginning, uh, uh, and so an example of that, you know, I, I, I quote um, Jim uh, Mormon, who is uh, working for the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund. He's, uh, I guess, at that point he was working for the, the Center for Law and Social Policy, uh, and they managed to stop the Alaskan Pipeline, which is one of the largest uh, infrastructure projects in American history at that point. Uh, and they're operating out of this dingy townhouse in D.C. You know, the copier is like situated on the kitchen table, uh, and and he describes. Just being overcome, uh, you know, you know, being in a daze, a fog uh, of just like what had just happened. You know, here we've we've stopped the oil companies uh, with this with this lawsuit. Uh, uh, intoxicating. I think they found it intoxicating, and they had tremendous early results. Um, and uh, but I think that some of these folks looking back, you know, people like Gus Speth who helped found the Natural Resource Defense Council, you know, have written that they. Kind of that they went astray, uh, and, and they 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 didn't attend enough to movement building, and they and they got too overly enamored with uh, with litigation and the administrative process. The other um, limit to their vision that I, that I wanted to call attention to comes really from uh, I, the, the book I finished just before yours, which is Jonathan Levy's uh, Ages of American Capitalism, this sort of doorstop survey of American um, history of American capitalism. And when he gets to Nader and and, and public rights, he he harkens back to the same. Um, portrait of the New Deal that you laid out at the beginning here, that we had a developmental arm and a regulatory arm. And he said, by the time we get to the Carter years, thanks to Nader and others, the regulatory arm was really emboldened and it was kind of off to the races, but the developmental arm had really kind of fallen away. And it was at least in their, it was kind of not part of their vision of this. And, and I think to quote him here, he says, you know, that this movement had nothing much to say about the dollar crisis or corporate investment and disinvestment at home or abroad or inflation. And is that yeah. a fair characterization? And, and kind of why, why, why would they be kind of aloof from these things that not only, I mean, maybe they're in the weeds, but they're also in the headlines at this time, right? Yeah. Well, that's, a, I mean, I, I, this uh, is, uh, I mean, I, I think the, the movement was quite antagonistic to a lot of uh, the sort of core aspects of economic uh, growth and economic development and, uh, uh, and was uh, exploring economic uh, alternatives. Uh, you know, this is more from, I talk about this kind of stuff in the bet, mm-hmm. uh, you know, small is beautiful, uh, you know, uh, um, soft energy paths, uh, limits to growth. Um, they, they, you know, there's a real, uh, a real critique of the use of applied science and technology in the post-war period, and they have, there's lots of justification for how that went astray. Um, but there was, uh, you know, a, 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 a sense of um, 
uh, one that those things were sort of corrupting, not not interesting, not their domain. Uh, they didn't want to be involved in that. Um, but also that there were these alternatives. And I think it's not until the end of the 90s uh, that you start to see the environmental movement uh, returning to trade agreements and uh, um, getting interested in the World Bank and the IMF and uh, and seeing that, oh, actually, hey, environmental things are, are, inter- are intertwined with all these other economic things. And uh, we need to broaden our definition of what the environment is uh, to include uh, you know other, other things. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, every uh, every great book that I read has one thing that I'm embarrassed not to have known. And, and, and the one here is that Barry Commoner ran for president in 1980. I, <laughs> I, I don't know how I didn't know that. Uh, that's that, that was very striking. Well, it wasn't the most successful. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> but rhetorically, I mean, the, the campaign also sounded like sounding a lot of the same notes that Nader will sound 20 years later when he runs in the yeah, second time yeah, for the Green that, Party. That's quite striking. Um, well, how, do we, how do we understand that? How, why, why did he run for president? How did it fit into that election, which becomes really important? Well, I mean, I, I think it was part of the left, uh, you know, uh, you know, an environment, you know, a critique of Carter, and, and that's part of what I'm getting at is is the 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 uh, the public interest movement. The la- there, there was a uh, sort of an unwillingness to come to terms with the compromises that Carter might have to make uh, in order to stay in power and to exercise power, uh, and there was a you know, a lot of dissatisfaction with what Carter was doing. Uh, and rather than sort of rally around Carter and uh, try to get him another term, uh, instead, many people, you know, uh, uh, flocked to, well, they flocked to Kennedy uh, as an alternative in the primary. They flocked to uh, Anderson in the general election. Uh, and then also, you know, people like Commoner uh, ran under a new Citizens Party. Uh, and Commoner, you know, Nader didn't want to run for office at that time. Uh, but And so Commoner, if he wanted to, I think he probably would have been the first choice. Um I don't have details, you know, exact evidence of that, but he, he, he had been talked about as a candidate since the early 70s. Um, you know, but Commoner echoed many of his themes, talking about Tweedledee and Tweedledum. You know, yeah. the Republican and Democrat parties are, are very similar, and uh, and he criticized Carter, said he shouldn't run again. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a citizen's movement to, you know, attack both of the major parties, seeing them both as uh, more the same uh, than, uh, than different. Totally. So, okay. So Commoner loses, Reagan wins um, is the way we always tell that story. But, you know, in, in the cartoon version of this history, the New Deal in regulatory order is kind of humming along. And then a suddenly powerful conservative movement comes off the sidelines and dismantles it. Um, and now your book really makes plain that there were there was a substantial liberal attack on the New Deal order that predated the rise of the right. But even more than that, what I was surprised by, and I knew the premise of the book, what I was surprised by is that, you know, sprinkled throughout, we have moments when conservatives actually adopt the public interest group tactics of these, you know, self-critical liberals. Um, and you even detail how Nader and, and Reagan, in your words, sounded a surprising number of common themes. So how did conservatives parallel the public interest movement? And, and then where, of course, did the two diverge? Well, I mean, I think that the uh, many conservatives, you know, picked up on the on the criticism of the agencies and of regulation as uh, uh, as uh, problematic and uh, you know liberals like Nader were criticizing the role of federal regulation as not serving the consumer uh, reg- uh, conservatives might have been more interested in liberating the uh, the, the companies the industries um, but they joined forces uh, in the uh, in the you know in the late 70s in the deregulatory movement that actually starts before Reagan and I think you know we often you know historians have written about this uh, plenty of plenty but I think the broader public often forgets that deregulation started under Carter uh, and then continued under under Reagan and uh, and and the deregulation under uh, under Carter was a, a great liberal uh, pride that they had accomplished it and you know Tom McCraw writes about this uh, in 
in profits of regulation, you know, the changing ideas about regulation. And again, I mentioned Dick Vitor's work uh, as well. Um, but this period of time going from the 20s and 30s to the 70s, there is a now is a reversal of attitude towards regulation. Uh, so that's those are some of the common themes of, of seeing uh uh, but they diverge in that, uh, uh, you know, Nader and the public interest groups, you know, they want more government. Uh, they want more active government that represents the what they see as the public interest. Uh, the Reaganites uh, want uh, want less government uh, uh, for the most part, um, although that's you know complicated. But they, uh, you know, they talk about wanting government to get out of the marketplace, and they tout this so-called free market. And, uh, uh, and so whereas, and, and they're very opposed to the, so, what's called the social and environmental regulation of the, of the early seventies, which they see as very oppressive to industry, whereas that's sort of the pride and joy of Nader and others, you know, that was what they had accomplished. Uh, so, there's, so, so there's a, you know, there's sharp disagreement in, in that. And then, uh, I think Reagan, uh, you know, the Reagan folks come in and they are so hostile to the actual practice of government, uh, that they then uh, actually, ironically, kind of derail the reform movement, um, which is one of the great ironies of the Reagan period is that they derail uh, government reform um, because they are so threatening to the very mere existence and operation of government. So that then pushes all these liberals who previously were attacking the government. Now they're in this uh, you know, full blown defense of the government. And, and that's kind of the stalemate that we end up uh, in, the, you know, in following uh, Reagan is that liberals get pushed to defense. Republicans have this uh, critique, uh, and it, and it's a very uh, simplistic uh, view of the whole thing. Yeah, um, by my count, you conducted is it twenty five oral history interviews during your research, and I wonder that you know beyond what you what you gleaned from those interviews to put in the book and to kind of narrate the, the events here. Um, how did those folks you know seem to think of the legacy of their work in this era? I think there's a lot of pride in, in things that they accomplished. Uh, you know, you think about clean air and clean water and uh, all, all sorts of different kinds of rights uh, that were uh, represented. And they also uh, 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 took action representing – it's a very idealistic movement uh, about uh, uh, um, kind of about trying to represent the public, represent groups that hadn't been represented before. Um, but I think there's also some uh, sense that – they were overly reliant on a sympathetic judiciary. And when the judiciary turned, all of a sudden the rug got a little bit pulled out from under them. Uh, and so that meant that the, uh, their, their approach was less uh, successful than they uh, had, had hoped. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, people like Gus Speth, uh, who's written a lot about uh, this recently, ha uh, you know, have been, you know, acknowledged that the uh, emphasis on uh, inside the Beltway sort of regulatory tactics uh, didn't build a broader social movement and political movement, and, and I think over the last fifteen years, or I don't know exactly know where you would pin it uh, exactly, uh, but the uh, there's been a, a, an, an interest in a rediscovery of politics, a rediscovery of communications, a rediscovery of a so, of social movement building, uh, and and the sense that uh, litigation is not uh, by itself is is not going to be a successful strategy. Although I, I would note, I guess that that uh, the Trump years you know really brought back public interest law uh, as uh, you know a leading edge of the resistance. Um, you know, with the ACLU and others, you know, suing the Trump administration, trying to block all sorts of stuff, and that and that uh, I think resonates between the founding of the public interest movement during the Nixon years uh, and then it's flourishing under the uh, under the Trump administration. There's this heavy reliance on the courts. And then there's also, you know, in, in this period, there's also this, this kind of question that keeps lurking. That's, you know, who gets to say what the public interest is, right? 
yeah. and you show that conservatives are, you know, because you could say that, you know. Well, I mean, that's yeah. what, yeah, you see yeah. that where you have all these, uh, you have groups like the Mountain State, you know, James Watt founds the Mountain State's uh, uh, legal uh, fund and uh, you have other uh, public interest law groups that get funded by the Coke brothers and uh, Coke and, uh, and others uh, um, to litigate. And now they got a sympathetic judiciary uh, and we're seeing some of that, that, that play out. So, uh, so it turns out that the, um, you know, the public interest uh, it, it's it, the ability of citizen groups to represent the public interest is, is not one that they can sort of control who gets to claim that mantle or use those tools. Uh, and I think one thing that's very interesting right now, and maybe I'll get a chance to write about it, though, is, is the uh, liberal attack on these folks and what they accomplished in the 70s uh, and kind of blaming it for many of our problems hmm. uh, today, whether it's housing, uh, climate, uh our inability to build, you know, transmission lines or wind farms or solar and saying that it's, it's the problem was that we overly empowered citizen groups and we disempowered the government uh, and we need to go back. Uh, so I, I think there's, you know, some really interesting questions there uh, related to current debates about infrastructure and uh, the politics of infrastructure that um, you know that, that we need we need you know need to explore. Yeah, that was actually my last question because I was curious whether you you know immersing yourselves uh, immersing yourself as you have in, in the very messy seventies. Um, if it's changed how you how you look at politics today, especially you know, would you say that having all of these small interest groups kind of as part of this sort of new tripartite structure where it's business, government, and not labor, but business, government, and interest groups, um, is that does that make it easier to stop things than to start things? Is it easier to not to stop the government from doing things than to actually launch big projects when we look forward to things like, you know, climate remediation and things like that that we, we need? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole movement was designed around stopping the government right, right. from doing things. And, <laughs> and uh, so I, th- I, th- I think they would see that, uh, you know, that was success, uh, was stopping highways, stopping dams, stopping, uh, you know, uh, redevelopment projects, stopping the spraying of pesticides. So, you know, that's success, I guess, in a lot of ways. But now, uh, you know, people are turning to the government and saying, hey, actually, we want them to do big things. We need to build these transmission lines. We need to build offshore wind farms. We need to build. Uh, And uh, uh, so I've been seeing uh, recent commentary that's been very critical of the uh, National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, uh, and blaming NEPA for all sorts of different things or state level uh, NEPA, uh, Mm -hmm. state NEPAs. Um, And uh, I think that's, uh, you know, quite striking because NEPA was the great success of uh, you know this early movement in in saying that actually that that by in, in, uh, creating the environmental impact statement uh, that uh, requirement that you would have reviews of federal projects uh, and you know so that was a, a ter- what great accomplishment uh, and now it's being seen as the villain uh, and I think that just raises you know questions about you know, liberalism yeah. about what, 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 you know, is NEPA uh, need to be jettisoned uh, or can it be somehow uh, rethought? And I think, you know, I've been trying to talk a little bit about infrastructure uh, recently. And I, and I think the key there, maybe, you know, I, I was just saying, you know, Biden has this phrase, build back better. Uh, and the key there is really on the better, yeah. um, because if we're going back to building back, you know, the way that they were building in the 60s and 70s, I think you're going to see a lot of the same uh, opposition, uh, much of it, you know, very well justified. And you can see that emerging around pipeline construction in Minnesota, uh, you know, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Keystone Pipeline, that those are all resistance movements to stop big infrastructure. Uh, at the same time, people are calling for other kinds of big infrastructure uh, to be built as being essential. Uh, so I think the better uh, we have to find some way to like uh, con- you know re- retain some oversight of these government uh, programs uh, and plans uh, 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 
but without completely paralyzing the government. And that, that really is the dilemma of, you know, the liberals face. Can liberals find a way to do nuance better than Carter did, right? Because it just looks, yeah, looks, right. it just it's looks, a, it's <laughs> challenging. It's hard. And it looks so easy for Reagan to run against it. Right? It looks so easy. It's, <laughs> well, it's, it's a lot easier. Just to, yeah. yeah, it's a lot easier <laughs> on both sides. It's yeah. a lot easier to just defend and it's a lot easier to just, uh, you know, just oppose. Uh, and how do you do something more complicated? Well, yeah, like I said at the top, an extremely timely book to, 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 to sit with this history and, and think about all of its uh, complexities. Um, I wonder, um, I hope you're very busy then talking to people today about it for, for the near future. Um, when your schedule, if your schedule ever opens up a little bit, are there, are there future projects you have in mind that you want to share at this point? Well, I, I'm figuring out the next direction. I, I, one project I'm, I'm, I'm exploring right now is to go back to uh, some materials I collected actually uh, as part of my first uh, project, but they, they have to do with lawyers. Uh, but in this case, it's uh, lawyers uh, operating overseas uh, in their 20s and 30s in, uh, in the Philippines and South America uh, uh, and working on uh, uh, trying to uh, sort of uh, facilitate oil company extraction. So these are oil company lawyers who are trying to you know, involved in uh, rewriting property laws and constitutions to uh, uh, sort of the le- leading edge of empire, I guess. So I'm exploring uh, that a little bit. I don't know whether we'll see whether it becomes more than an article, but it's a it's a new project that I'm working on. Well, I can tell listeners if, if they're resistant to reading a book about lawyers, I can promise you, you should try one by Paul. Stavon first. <laughs> this one, this one is very compelling. The book, again, is Public Citizens, the Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. Its author, my guest, is Paul Sabin. Its publisher is W.W. Norton. And you should go snag your copy now. Paul, thanks so much for your time and for this book. Thanks, Brian. Enjoyed the conversation.